But so here we are. We're a few weeks into our series. It's the 1st of November. Two months since schools went back. So if, you're, if you have small children, you've just had half term. And some of you are sitting there probably quite relieved that the children are going back to school tomorrow. No. Oh, well, there we are. Um, you're not. Wonderful, Michaela. You've been blessed by having your children at home. One is easier than 30. Yes, Michaela is a teacher, so she uh, back into the fire of teaching. But um, yeah, so we we've come to the end. We're, we're at John chapter three, and we're going to start in a moment, verse 22. And we've come to the end of a fourth successive section, if you like, of John's gospel, where um, John, the writer, points out four different ways in which Jesus fulfills. And surpasses the Jewish faith. Jesus firstly reveals his glory in turning water into wine at the wedding. He then clears the temple where he intimates that the temple of God will soon have a different role, a different um, take than being a building of mortar and stone. He then explains the, the sort of regeneration that takes place as we're born again of water and spirit as we um, believe in Jesus and who he is. And then finally we come to today's passage. And this is a passage of how Jesus is to be one who surpasses John the Baptist. And John um, himself is one of the last of the Old Testament type prophets And he comes along and explains to this Jewish community that there is a a baptism of water that can take place, that that, that leads them into a greater understanding and relationship with God. And Jesus' baptism, as John explains, is a baptism that will be of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the point where um, John was baptizing in the River Jordan, and now Jesus was quite significant. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the um, passage first and then go into that in a bit more de- detail. So if you want to follow with me in your Bibles, it's John chapter 3, verse 22 till the end. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out in the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan The one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine, and it is now complete. 
He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So, just to set the scene a little bit of where this passage takes place. It was just south of the Sea of Galilee, at a place called Ainon, near the settlement of Salim. It was a significant location for two reasons. First, this area was associated with Elijah the prophet. In fact, Elijah's birthplace was in Tishbe, which was only a few miles across the Jordan. But even more important, it was the intersection of the valley of Jezreel and the the Jordan River. So this is just a photo I put up of the River Jordan. So just really imagine that John would have been on the side of this river baptizing and Jesus would have been a little bit further down baptizing as well. So if we go to the next slide. So if you look, you can see Anon is sort of um, a bit further up, if you like, just away from the river. And Salim is a bit close to the river further down. Now, if you notice, there are some hills running along the side of the river between the coast and the river. And it was in between these hills that people would have been making their way to um, Judea, the areas down south, for Jewish festivals. So it would have been quite a thoroughfare for Jewish people on their way to the Jewish festivals. And it's believed that the time this story happened, that there would have been, um, it would have been sort of autumn and the, the Jewish people would have been making their way for the Jewish festivals that would have been taking place in Judea. Today, I want us to take some time to really get into the minds and the hearts of the people involved in this account. Firstly, from the viewpoint of John's disciples. You've got John's disciples who are baptizing on the River Jordan with John the Baptist. Secondly, I want to just have a moment just to think about John the Baptist's response in this particular account, in this story. And then I want us to think a little bit about Jesus, how he was responding and what his thoughts were about what was going on with this whole Baptist ministry that was taking place. And then I want us to think about what we can possibly take away from these people and what they were thinking, what was going on in their minds during this time. So firstly, from John's disciples. So firstly, John's disciples, um, they would have all been Jewish people that would have, um, have, have either known John before and they would have met him either making their way down to Judea. They may have, um, in some ways, John wouldn't have been the sort of obvious person. He might have been quite a good, um, obvious choice for a prophet. Because it's, it's quite strange for a man to be eating locusts and honey, living in the desert, 
dressed in camel hair. I'd imagine it would, it would have been an interesting sight to see as people were making their way um, by the river. He was clearly a prophet that was sent by God. In fact, he was the first of his kind since the days of Malachi, 400 years previous. John's father was Zechariah, who was a priest in the temple, and his family was descended from Aaron. So regardless of all his credentials, I'd imagine that the Spirit of God was clearly on this man. He was clearly anointed and was clearly outworking the calling that God had given him for that moment as he was there on the River Jordan. And I imagine many people were drawn by that. Many people were baptised by him and his followers there on the River Jordan. Because they were drawn, I think, because God's hand was on him and the Spirit of God was working through him. Some of his disciples may well have heard him, um, obviously, preaching and baptising by the river. And in fact, they could have just chosen to follow him after getting baptised and could have been some of the many that were baptising others there by the river. Whatever the reason, they would have been captured by something of his insight into what this new baptism in water represented when it comes to a cleansing from sin that previously could only be found through the sacrifice of animals at the temple. John's ministry marked the beginning of a radical change in, this, in the direction of the Old Testament teaching. A need for personal repentance, baptism and confession of sin. It marked a new chapter in God's redemptive plan. So while all this was going on, while John's followers were baptising people, a fellow Jew comes up to them and asks them some questions about ceremonial washing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading this, I did think to myself, you know, you know, this man could have come up to these disciples and actually, first of all, just started to ask an innocent question. Because it must have been strange for him, watching these people baptising as Jews and just thinking, well, what is going on? Because this is not what we've done before. Why is it that you're baptising? And it's interesting the Bible says that an argument developed. It didn't start. So it might have been a bit where they were just talking and then... You know, maybe the disciples of John just got a little bit frustrated with him because he really didn't understand why they were baptising. You know, in the law of Moses, there are many references to ceremonial washing. However, most of these are not in relation to the ordinance of baptism. So you can almost imagine the disciples perhaps even getting a little bit frustrated or embarrassed or unsure of themselves, you know, slightly insecure because the questions they're being asked may be they're not quite sure that they are able to put their point across where this guy really gets it. You know, and sometimes I think that we can sometimes get a little frustrated if we aren't sure what we are to say when people ask us about our faith. You know, how difficult it is when somebody asks you about situations that are going on in the world? You know, how can you attribute your faith to when you see all the atrocities that are taking place in particular places around the world. When you see of people down the road, you know, experiencing hardship. You know, when you see all these refugees with nowhere to go, running, fleeing. You know, how can your God allow these things to happen? You know, sometimes we can 
get a bit frustrated even with ourselves or we can get a little bit insecure of, you know, well, how can I give an answer to these particular people that ask me these questions? How can there be a God when all these things are happening? You know, I don't know about you, sometimes, well, this used to very much be a, a thought of mine. If somebody asks me a difficult question, I used to think, well, I'll ask my church leader and they'll be able to give me the answer and then I'll be able to tell them next time. But, you know, God has given each one of us the right thing to say at the right time for people that have questions. You know, and I'm going to come on to this a bit later, but, you know, this whole passage is about John gives testimony to Jesus. You know, when he's asked questions by his followers, he directs them straight away to Jesus. And, you know, I think that God gives us answers. You know, we can give testimony of what God has done in each one of our own lives. Everybody in this room can give testimony of the amazing goodness and the grace of God. Every one of us. And I think that is a key to be able to think how we can answer people um, when, when we're asked difficult questions. John's disciples demonstrate a lack of understanding, perhaps, of what's going on in the grand scheme of things. When we go on in the passage, it then goes on where, he, um, where the disciples ask John, you know, why is it that all the people are going to Jesus' um, followers to be baptised? You know, why aren't, they, why aren't they coming to us anymore? You know, they, they don't, they're perhaps resentful of Jesus. You know, they're not too far down the river and then all these people are just disappearing off to another place. It can be a bit disheartening, can't it? You know, if, you're, if you think you're doing the thing that God's called you to and you're, you know, you're seeing fruit and you're seeing people do the things that you think, are, you know, are, are what you're thinking is right, and then all of a sudden, actually, they're going to someone else, well, that, that can be a bit disheartening. But actually, John, John's response is wonderful. And his response is one of um, giving testimonies, as I said a moment ago, of Jesus. He responds to the negativity of his followers by declaring the greatness of Jesus. You know, the Bible is full of testimonies which testify to the greatness of God. You know, one of the things we want to prioritize is, you know, hearing your testimonies on a weekly basis. Because hearing other people's testimonies has an amazing way of building your faith of God's greatness. We had the membership course this week. And one of the things we do on, on the membership course is we, we do encourage people to share some of their testimony. And we give people that sort of freedom to share, um, you know, where, where the things they want to share. And, and I was so impacted and encouraged by the testimonies that we heard on Tuesday night. You know, people, you know, just so impacted by God and seeing God provide in such miraculous ways. You know, it, it's wonderful to hear. And I think each of us have got those stories of God's provision, of how God has met with us. God has given each one of us the Holy Spirit to guide us and fill us and direct us and to give us the words to speak. Through faith, we have the confidence to speak about the power of God. Just, I really feel in my heart that God's given some people here to be a mouthpiece and to speak out testimonies of God's goodness and grace. And I think you need to step forward. I think you need to be like the two Marys and just go towards the, the, the tomb. Even if you can't get in, the stone's still there. Just go with, with what God's given you. 
and be a testimony and speak out the goodness of God. Because God has given each one of us things that nobody else has given. We are each unique and individual and each of our testimonies is an encouragement for others. It's through our testimony that God is glorified. It's when we confess with faith that no matter what, God is good. When we give examples in our lives where we've seen the faithfulness of God. Where deep in our hearts we can stand and just declare Jesus is Lord. He's the fulfillment of all that's written in the Bible. You know, my testimony over the past month is, is the, the power of God written in the Bible, in the written word. You know, the Bible has guided and strengthened me in ways that go beyond any natural encouragement. You know, there has been particular scripture this month that I have just held on to and I've been just like, wow, this has had such a deep spiritual meaning to me that I am so... Uh, I just feel so encouraged and so able to go next day, the next day, the next day, because of the word of God. You know, one particular one is Isaiah forty thirty one. You know, and it talks about us running and walking in God and just, you know, being like on the wings of eagles and just being comforted and strengthened by God. You know, and it's just, just reading that verse in the morning, it's like water to my soul. You know, each of us has a soul that connects with the living God through the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit speaking through these words that enables me to feel and to know, not just emotionally, but just to know encouragement from God. You know, other ones, Romans 15, 13, Luke 10, 18, Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, have just been verses I've been reading over the last four or five weeks that I've just been reading again and again and again. You know, even out loud. They've inspired me. How much does the word of God stir you? How much does the, the Bible just really stir you? You know, how much of the love of the word... You know, how much is this book by your bed or on the kitchen table? You know, I can tell you, it it, it is the book that has kept me going. You know, keep it somewhere just that you've got in your back pocket. You know, it's worth more than you can imagine to have the word word of God near you. (laughs) Sorry. I would tell you what I just did, but... It's a bit embarrassing. Anyway, um, each of us has a story to tell of God's amazing grace. Um, no, I will tell you. I just licked the microphone thinking it was a page of my notes. <laughs> there you go. Ah, good stuff. Right. So, where was I? You know, last month, um, there were a few of us at uh, the church that um, go to the academy, which is a monthly training for church leaders and those um, within the church who are involved in leadership. And um, last month we uh, looked at the book of Acts and um, Fillmore introduced the, the weekend of teaching, um, which was, you know, about the Holy Spirit. The whole book of Acts, um, he used Acts as a way of teaching about the Holy Spirit. And as he introduced the weekend, he introduced it with the presupposition that God, that God used... Nobodies. 
That God used people who are absolutely, you know, nobody in any context to take the good news of Jesus to the nations. So he introduced that in terms of um, Jesus' followers, the disciples. The fact that they were, they were fishermen, they were people, they were unschooled men. They had no formal education. And it's where God takes people that are just people that just know Jesus, that just anyone that is a human being, me or you, he just takes them and coupled with the Holy Spirit, he takes these nobodies and he makes us into mighty men and women of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You know, it's nothing that I can do to make me into a mighty man of God. Okay? Nothing. I am a nobody, and I'm proud of being a nobody. In fact, I will rejoice at being a nobody, but filled with the Holy Spirit, I am somebody. Knowing Jesus as my saviour, I am somebody. I am a child of God. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, I can take wonderful ground. I can step out in faith. I am standing here today as a testimony of God's grace and God's Holy Spirit working in me. And I think that's an awesome thing. And I think as we look at this story particularly, I think that John's followers just, they haven't quite got that. They haven't quite got that sense of that actually in baptizing people on that river Jordan, they were fulfilling what God had called them to do. And they could celebrate that and rejoice in it. I'm a massive reader of biographies. I love reading about people, if I'm honest. I love reading about people. I love people. And I love the way that God has made everyone so different. So when I read a biography or autobiography, I can really begin to get into the mind, if you like, and the psyche of the person behind the name. And I'm always fascinated, if you like, by what causes someone to push themselves to achieve what they've achieved. So I often read about people that um, have gone off to China or South America to take the gospel and, and things like that. And how much they've given up, whatever cost, they've chosen to do this particular venture. And I'm particularly inspired by, um, if you like, 19th century Christians who would have given up their homes, families, securities, wealth for many, to take the gospel to the nations. And there were many at the time that would have gone, that we don't even know their names about. I mean, we've heard of people like, you may not have heard of them, but the Cambridge Seven were well-schooled, educated men who went to China following hearing about Hudson Taylor taking the gospel to China. And they went out there and there's stuff written about them. But I just find it fascinating. Why would they do that? You know, why would they give up everything in order to um, take the gospel. You know, there was a drive in those people that the name of Jesus must become greater and they themselves must become less. They understood something about what it was to be a nobody, if you like, and what it was to take the name of Jesus, that the name of Jesus must become greater. 
Now, I just want to read to you a testimony from um, a book on Moody, who again was um, a Christian from the, um, the 1860s. And this is an account of his life and a Sunday school teacher in the church. So, so this is about the 1860s. And it was a time of great excitement in the nation. So Moody was an American. Uh, he moved to, um, born in the country in America and moved to Chicago to set up a shoe business. But then um, this is what happened. Abraham Lincoln had been nominated and elected president. And like the young men who were... Uh, his associates, Mr. Moody, was immersed in business and politics and keenly alive to all the events of the hour. He had an experience at this time, however, that entirely transformed his career and led him to devote himself exclusively to God, to Christian work. All ambitions for wealth were sacrificed, but not until the struggle had lasted three long months. Finally, when he felt... Um, to be the call of God was triumphant, and he surrendered his own plans for his father's. How he came to give up business altogether is told in his own words. So here we go. I'd never lost sight of Jesus Christ since the first time I met him in the store at Boston. So he got converted in um, a shoe shop in Boston. But for many years, I really believed that I could not work for God. No one had ever asked me to do anything. But when I went to Chicago, um, I hired four pews in a church and used to go out on the street to pick up um, people on the street and fill these pews. I never spoke to these people at all about their souls. That was the work of the elders, I thought. And after working for some time like that, I started a mission Sunday school. So here we have, most of you have probably heard of Moody, one of the greatest evangelists of all time. And here he is, not even concerned about the souls. How he started, not even thinking about men's souls, just, just actually thinking about numbers. And you'll see as I read on. I thought numbers were everything, he said. And so I worked for numbers. When the attendance ran below a thousand, it troubled me. When it ran to 12 or 1500, I was elated. Still, none were converted. There was no harvest. Then God opened my eyes. There was a class of young ladies in the school who were, without exception, the most frivolous set of girls I ever met. I love the way these things are written. One Sunday, the teacher was ill, and I took the class. They laughed in my face, and I felt like opening the door and telling them all to go out and never come back. That week, the teacher of the class came into the store where I worked, and he was pale and looked very ill. What's the trouble, I asked. I've had another hemorrhage from the young, l- l- lungs. Sorry, The doctor says I cannot live on Lake Michigan, so I'm going back to New York State. I suppose that's where I'm going to die. He seemed greatly troubled, and when I asked the reason, he replied, Well, I have never led any of my class to Christ. I really believe I have done the girls more harm than good. I had never heard anyone talk like that before, and it set me thinking. And after a while, I said, suppose you go and tell them how you feel. I will go with you in a carriage, horse and carriage, if you want to go. He consented, and we started out together. And it was one of those best journeys I ever had on earth. We went to the house of one of the girls, called for her, and the teacher talked to her about her soul. There was no laughing then. 
Tears stood in her eyes before long. And after he'd explained the way of life, he suggested that we have a word of prayer. And he asked me to pray. True, I'd never done such a thing in my life as to pray God to convert a young lady there and then. But we prayed and God answered our prayer. We went to the other houses. We would go upstairs and be out of breath. And he would tell the girls what he'd come for. And it wasn't long before they broke down and sought for salvation. And when his strength gave out, I took him back to his lodgings, and the next day we went again. And at the end of ten days, he came to the store with his face literally shining. Mr. Moody, he said, the last one of my class has yielded herself to Christ. Hallelujah. 160 years ago. I tell you, we had a time of rejoicing He had to leave the next night, so I called his class together for a prayer meeting. And there, God kindled a fire in my soul that has never gone out. The height of my ambition had been to be a successful merchant. And if I'd known that meeting was going to take that ambition out of me, I might not have gone. But how many times have I thanked God since for that meeting? You know... That's my prayer for tonight's prayer meeting. That the fire of God would come and just just burn us up with his presence and his glory and the wonderful goodness of God that we just are sold out for him. The dying teacher sat in the midst of his class and talked with them and read the 14th chapter of John, which will come, I'm sure, in a few weeks' time. We try to sing, blessed be the tie that binds. Do we know that one, Tim? Do that next Sunday. After which we now to pray. I was just rising from my knees when one of the class began to pray for the dying teacher. Another prayed and another, and before long, the whole class was pr- had prayed. And I went out and I said to myself, Oh God, let me die rather than lose the blessing I have received tonight and the next evening I went to the depot to say goodbye to the teacher just before the train started one of the class came and before long without any prearrangement, the whole class was there to see the teacher off and what a meeting that was we tried to sing but we all broke down and that is the end of that story just it's a testimony isn't it i know it's 160 years old but it's a testimony of god working in people's hearts particularly moody that was a a turning point for him in his life it caused him to look to god and in fact give up his work secular work and commit himself to see people come to know jesus now that's not obviously for everybody that's his calling But God's got a calling on each one of us. God's put his hands on each one of us. We are unique. And my heart and desire is that each one of us would continue to discover who we are in him. We'll continue to discover what it is that he's called us to. Um, Abby and I recently went to see the Suffragettes movie and... um, Many of you will know the history of the um, suffragettes movement and the name Emily Pankhurst. 
would probably be a name that um, you would associate with the suffragettes. But the film wasn't about Emily Pankhurst. In fact, Emily Pankhurst was only in the film for about two minutes at most. The film was about a lady called Maud Watts. And Maud Watts was a lady who was a nobody. She, in fact, was a worker in a laundry factory. You know, her mother was a worker in that factory before her. And do you know the thing that impressed me most about Maud Watts was the passion and the drive that she had to see women get the vote. And, you know, she sacrificed so much. If you watch the film, you'll see what she gave up in order to see um, women get the vote. And it, it just it impacted me just how much she gave up and what um, the fact that she was just, as I say, just a laundry worker. Yet through this film, you know, she, um, she was able to do so much for the thing that she was fighting for. And, you know, even in the worship today, you know, I think that faith, when we stir it up in ourselves, coupled with the Holy Spirit, within somebody like me, a nobody, is a powerful force to be reckoned with. It's a powerful force in the hands of God. You know, and faith is available. Faith is a gift, and it's available to each one of us. So... We've looked at John's disciples, how they responded. We've looked a little bit of John and how he responds. John um, clearly explains who he is not. He's not the Christ. And he subtly outlines who he is. John has a very clear understanding of who he is. When he, um, when he baptizes people on the, by the river... He was clearly knows that he was sent as a herald to beckon in the coming of Christ. So one thing that he says um, is, you know, Jesus um, has come and, you know, I must decrease, he must increase. You know, I think one of the, um, the biggest lies of, of Satan is to distract Christians from fulfilling all that God has planned for their lives. You know, and then when people come into that place of feeling fulfilled in all that God's got for them, just the joy and celebration that they can know and the testimony to declare that where they are is because of the wonderful goodness of God. So a question I just want to ask you today, are you where you want to be? If not, do you know how to get there? What decisions do you need to make today in order to get where God wants you to be? If you are, if you feel you are in the right place, fantastic. And my challenge to you is to share with others your testimony. Keep on talking about the part that God plays in your life. That way others will be encouraged Others will be strengthened by seeing God's call on your life and the outworking of that. Just as John 
directed his disciples to Jesus. My prayer for myself is that there be more of Jesus and less of me. That his name would be lifted high and mine decrease. That his ministry would go from strength to strength and mine decrease. Jesus must become greater. So what about Jesus? What was his response to this? Well, in chapter 4, verse 3, we learn just at the, after this um, chapter, when Jesus discovers that his disciples are gaining and baptizing more people, he actually left Judea and went back to Galilee. So what does this tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us that um, Jesus wasn't interested in baptizing ministry. He wasn't wanting to set up lots of stalls by the River Jordan and start you know, dividing the ministry up, getting banners and flashing lights and start a baptism ministry. He wasn't interested in that. Jesus, to become greater, was not by force or by might, but by submitting to his Father's will. Jesus never considered greatness to be something to be grasped. He only outworked what he saw his Father doing in heaven. In John 5, a bit later, it says, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever his Father does, the Son also does. Jesus becomes greater, but only in a way that's in line with his Father's plan. So what's our response? Well, I want you to think, do you perhaps sometimes respond like John's followers? Fearful, perhaps? Defensive? Maybe resentful? Or do we respond like John himself? Ready and willing to make room for Jesus. Full of faith for what God will do through you and me. Stepping out in confidence to the call that God has put on your life which for every single one of us is different and unique but wonderful just the same. Some of us are called to the workplace. Some of us are called to be witnesses and examples in the workplace. Not all of us are called like Moody to be evangelists to the nations. But each one of us, I believe, God puts a seed in each of our hearts of what we're called to be and what we're called to do. And my encouragement to you is to be ready and willing to allow Jesus to help you and to just give you the faith to step out in all of that. I think the more we humble ourselves and repent if we need to and allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, the greater freedom, the greater witness and the greater testimony that we will have to the greatness and the goodness of God.